0: DiscerningHearts.com presents The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. For over 20 years, Dr. Bunsen has been active in the area of Catholic social communications and education, including writing, editing, and teaching on a variety of topics related to church history, the papacy, the saints, and Catholic culture. He is the faculty chair at the Catholic Distance University, a senior fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and the author or co-author of over 50 books, including the Encyclopedia of Catholic History and the best-selling biographies of St. Damien of Malachi and St. Kateri Tekakowitha. He also serves as a senior editor for the National Catholic Register and is a senior contributor to EWTN News. The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen, I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Oh, it's great to be with you again, Chris, in this next installment of The Doctors.
0: We're about to embark on a conversation about St. Gregory of Nazianza. Uh,
1: he was named a doctor in 1568 by St. the V at a time when the Church was really pushing ahead with the great Catholic reform, with the, the reforms of the Council of Trent and the renewal of the Church.
0: A very spiritual man. Pope Benedict XVI would say that he loved philosophical and spiritual meditation. That solitude fascinated him.
1: Yes, it did. We see in the the life of Gregory uh, the a permanent tension between... What he felt he was sort of born to do, and that was to lead a life of seclusion, of prayer and meditation, and then the great call uh, to which he responded in becoming a priest and then becoming a bishop, in serving as he was called by Christ to do. And for him, it was a constant struggle. It was a great cross, I think, in his life, and We can honor St. Gregory because of his willingness to set aside his inclination toward solitude, toward a life of rigorous prayer and asceticism, a solitary life uh, in favor of the harder road, uh, the, the road of the cross for him, which was to be out in the world, defending the teachings of the Church, serving as a priest, as a bishop, as a defender of orthodoxy. At a time, as we're going to talk, the, the Aryan heresy had seemed to uh, risen again into ascendancy. And so for him, his life from the time that he was born, uh, probably around 329 or 330, until his very death in, in 389 or 390, was one of that permanent tension. And that's one of the, our first lessons in him, uh, in recognizing in ourselves what we may be called to do, as difficult as that path might be.
0: It reminds me of another personality who we all know so well, and that's Pope John Paul II, who, if I'm not mistaken, in his early years, had such a great desire to become a Carmelite, and to enter uh, the Carmel, the monastic life, to be able to deepen his prayer. And yet he was called out under circumstances to be a pastor and then a bishop and a teacher.
1: He was. It, it, it's a, a very apt um, historical uh, analogy uh, that you're noting. Uh, he was uh, feeling very much called to the, the life of prayer and solitude in the Carmelites. But similar to... Uh, The life of Gregory, uh, John Paul II, Karol Wotiwa, uh, was discouraged in this uh, by his own uh, leaders, the Archbishop of Krakow, who basically told him, no, I I will not allow you to shut yourself away from the world because we need you. And that wasn't uh, a condemnation in any way of uh, the contemplative life, but it was a recognition that he was needed elsewhere, that the church needed him. And certainly history, in the case of Carol Otiwa, and history in the case of Gregory of Nazianzus, proved that the instincts of those around them, that these were people called by Christ to serve in the world, I think they were, were completely validated uh, by the extraordinary service that they rendered to the church and to the world.
0: You speak of the Arian heresy. And we've talked about it repeatedly yes. since we began. It, it seems to be our, like this recurring
1: theme throughout all of the, the early uh, discussions of any of the doctors of the church. It
0: just once again, yeah. In a, in a nutshell, how do we recognize the Arian heresy?
1: Well, in a nutshell, the the Arian heresy proposed that Christ is not uh, an eternal being that. What we understand now as the Trinity, uh, we could not identify with Christ. In other words, that uh, Christ is the Son of God, but he was created at some point. As the famous Arian dictum said, uh, there was a time when he was not. And that, of course, has immense ramifications for the understanding of truth, the understandings of the teachings of the Church that if there was a time when Christ was not, what does this say about the Trinity? In fact, what does this say about God? What does this say about our salvation? Uh, all of this the, the domino effect that one can imagine that would flow from the idea that there was a time when Christ was not, that he is not eternal, created within the Church this immense heresy. And it was perpetuated not by the mass appeal, Not by the fact that the Christian faithful all over, especially the Eastern Church, ran and embraced it. Because it was able to secure political support from a number of emperors, especially in the East, who then imposed it from the top down uh, by appointing, arianizing, as they say, bishops, who themselves appointed arianizing priests, who then basically forced it an and angry and often very resentful faithful. But we have to remember the, the power of the state at the time and the, the control that the, the emperors tried to exercise in removing bishops, in exiling popes. It made the situation ideally suited for them, for the Arians to win political victories, and by doing so, Uh, being able to impose their heretical views on the rest of the the Orthodox Church, and what I mean Orthodox in the sense of the faithful Church. And those are the circumstances that really colored the lives of these early doctors of the Church, and and Gregory Nazianzus and and Basil were not exceptions to this. And their friendship, though, really forged in them uh, the, the knowledge that they needed Uh, but also the the strength and understanding of the faith and their love for the faith, to combat it. And to understand their friendship, we have to go all the way back to the very beginning uh, in Cappadocia, because Gregory himself, thanks to his his parents, uh, his mother by the name of Nana, converted uh, her husband, uh, Gregory, uh, to Christianity, and he was so dedicated to the church and the faithful teachings of the church that he was eventually named a bishop in Nazianzus, and was therefore able to provide Gregory and his brother uh, with a very, very fine education. And Gregory excelled in that. So he mastered rhetoric, he mastered philosophy, not just in his hometown, but in the significant learning center in the region of Caesarea. And then he was sent to arguably the two greatest spots in the world at the time for knowledge and philosophy and even theology, and that is Alexandria in Egypt, where they had one of the great catechetical schools, and then in Athens. And it was while in Athens that he became such close friends with Basil, who was himself from Caesarea, and notably one other student who was studying there, uh, a, a nobleman, a Roman imperial patrician by the name of Flavius Claudius Julianus, who became known as Emperor Julian the Apostate, the last really great pagan emperor of Rome. So they knew each other. And when when Gregory returned to Nazianzus, uh, he was essentially against his will uh, ordained a priest and set out on that path of being called to defend orthodoxy in a very dark time.
0: He's nicknamed the theologian. That is a term that sometimes has gotten a bit of criticism over the centuries, you know, what a theologian is. What at its heart is a, a theologian, Matthew?
1: Well, the, uh, one of the best ways to uh, describe that is, is uh, one who studies God, to, to put it in that simple light but a theologian is one who dedicates his life to studying the mysteries of the faith. And he is called a, a theologian because that is really what he did. He, he studied the mysteries. And when we begin to contemplate uh, the, the Trinity, when we contemplate the procession of the Holy Spirit, the communion of persons of the Holy Trinity, we are indeed Gazing at the greatest, most immense of the mysteries, but you know Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, in his discussions of uh, the doctors of the church, made I think a, a wonderful observation uh, about uh, Gregory of Nazianzas, but especially uh, about the the idea of theologizing and he said that for Gregory. The the nickname of the theologian, especially as as he's called by the Eastern Church, especially the Orthodox Church. He says that this is because to his way of thinking, theology was not merely human reflection or even less, only a fruit, he said, of complicated speculation. But it sprang instead from a life of prayer and holiness, from a persevering dialogue with God. He said, and in this way... He causes the reality of God, the mystery of the Trinity, to appear to our reason. And I think that's a, that's a very powerful insight as to what makes a great theologian. We have this tendency to think of a theologian as somebody who deals with arcane, academic, dry content. And yet, as Benedict shows us with bravery. As Benedict shows us with his own life, his own life, that there has to be that fundamental connection between theology and prayer, between theology and the love of the church, between theology and obedience to rightful authority, to the magisterium of the church, so that you exist within that beautiful universe of faith, of prayer, of life of the church and, and in that sense and you're truly contributing to an understanding a deepening of the understanding of the faith and that's what I think Gregory of Nyssa tried to do for all of us who strive to be believers
0: we'll return in just a moment to the doctors of the church the charism of wisdom with dr. Matthew Bunsen Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher? Tune in, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts.
2: The Creed. Amen.
0: Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. When talking about Gregory of Nazianzus. His response to that Arian heresy that you described so beautifully just a few minutes ago, that is so key because he dives into the heart of the Trinity and, for, and, and being able to break open why the belief that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is so intrinsic to understand who we are as believers, as Christians, and that it's not... Necessarily, like other beliefs, who do not hold that same truth in their hearts.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, we find in his writings, and we, it's also reflected in his poetry. I mean, it is estimated—I think—that he wrote anywhere between eighteen to nineteen thousand verses of poetry. All of those reflecting his meditations on the faith, and in trying to defend. The teachings of the faith but especially the, the doctrine of the Trinity uh, and, and this is consistent with what we find with so many of the church fathers of the 4th the and 5th centuries when in this kind of crucible of heresy they were able to burn away the heretical teachings and, and came away with the purity of the faith as you would gold in a furnace and in Gregory we have theological contributions that cover almost the whole of the Trinity. So in other words, he writes about God. He writes about the Holy Spirit. Uh, pneumatology, which is a, a sort of a subset of theology, of Trinitarian theology in which we look at the, the nature of the Holy Spirit. He was one of the very first of the theologians to use the term of procession, to describe the relationship between the Holy Spirit and, and God. He talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit is truly spirit coming forth from the Father. And he says it is not by generation, he says, but by procession. But then he adds that I must coin a word for the sake of clearness. And that's, that's a very key phrase there. Because what he's trying to provide is clarity at a time when so many were confused in the church. And then he goes on to stress uh, the consubstantial nature of of Christ. And in that sense, he's upholding the, the Nicene Creed. He is upholding the unity of the teachings of the Church. And again, to go back, he is stressing the clarity that authentic teachings can provide. And then he talks about the relationship of us with with God, with the Trinity, that uh, we ourselves are called to uphold the Son as our model, Uh, and in that sense, too, uh, our participation in the life of the Trinity. So it's an all-encompassing way of looking at the faith at a time when We needed it the most. And he put himself to the service of the church. And we see again and again, he he was ordained essentially against his will. He was then, he was also convinced by Basil and his his father to become a bishop in a diocese that he did not want to go to. And we we can talk about that. And it placed great strains on his uh, friendship uh, with, with Basil. But he also did these things, because he felt compelled in obedience, uh, and he also recognized the need.
0: Kind of maybe new to our vocabulary, and that's consubstantial. Of course, that's the term that was brought forward in the new translation of the Roman Missal for those who speak English. And many thought, well, you know, that's too big of a word. People will never get what consubstantial (laughs) means.
1: Yeah, well, when we... Are discussing um, our understanding of the the Holy Trinity, Uh, we always arrive at the word consubstantial. And of course, you're absolutely right that that has come into uh, the vocabulary more than ever. And I think that's one of the the great values of the new translation, Mm -hmm. uh, that it is in closer fidelity to the original Latin and the the original language of of the creed, Uh, but it also helps Christians, in exactly the same way that that it would have in the time of Gregory, in the time of the Church Fathers, to be very precise in what we're saying, and then to force us to meditate a bit on what this means. Consubstantial, essentially, uh, is from the translation of the Greek for uh, what we mean by the relationship. In other words... We're describing the relationship among the divine persons of the Trinity. And it notes that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are of one being, consubstantial. And then, of course, we we talk about that the Son is generated uh, before all ages or eternally, which is a rejection of the Arian teaching. And then we can talk also about that the Spirit also eternally proceeds. Now we certainly don't have the the time to sort of get into all of the theological discussions of consubstantial and and proceeds. Mm -hmm. But but what we're seeing is an effort on the part of the church fathers in the fourth century to provide a rich enough vocabulary to, to describe that relationship of the Trinity. And from that then, all things can flow uh, in defense of those authentic teachings and as a rejection against the deformations of those teachings uh, by by heretics like the Arians who denied the fact that Christ was before all ages or eternal.
0: Which is a good reminder, again, why in the 1500s, during the time of the Council of Trent and the Reformation, that particular period that the Holy See would want us to go back to the the church fathers to see the consistency in teaching on the the mystery of the church and the mystery of the faith because it was getting splintered then and it still is today in many ways.
1: Yes, yes, and uh, that has been a a special hallmark of the last 60, 70 years in the church. We, we think of the ressourcement. Uh, we think of the work of uh, so many of the, the great modern theologians, Hans-Ros von Balthasar, Henri de Lubach, we can, we can add in there Joseph Ratzinger, to go back to reappreciate the work of these church fathers. And it is especially timely today in a increasingly post-Christian environment Mm -hmm. Think, for example, of the fact that around 379, Gregory was called to go to Constantinople, the great imperial capital. And the reason he was asked to go there and subsequently became uh, the, the bishop there and helped to lead the Council of Constantinople in 381, that once again rejected heresy. He was sent there because it seemed to so many in the Eastern Church that the very capital of the Roman Empire in the east had fallen completely under the dominion of the Arians, under the dominion of the heretics. So what did did he do? He arrived. He wanted to be off somewhere in seclusion, in prayer, but he went into this maelstrom of heresy, not to try to impose through violence, which is what the the Arians did, but He simply established a church. It was called the Church of the Anastasis, the Church of the Resurrection. And it's this uh, very subtle name for this church because on the one hand, he's celebrating the resurrection of Christ, the Anastasis, but on the other, it is a way of describing what was going to happen to the authentic faith in this city because thanks to him, it did have this resurrection. He delivered uh, five great orations And from this little church in the middle of an imperial capital that was in the thrall of heresy began the great fight to recover orthodoxy in the church in the capital itself. And that's one of the other things that we can appreciate so much from these church fathers, that just as we are struggling today in dealing with dissent in a culture that despises us, that the culture of death, not just the the teachings, but also the example of their lives in these fathers and doctors, we can find the courage and also the words that we need uh, to turn our own little communities into a church of the Anastasis.
0: In that deep prayer life that he would have, that immersion into the the heart of the Trinity uh, through his... Experience of theology. He would also be able to articulate the complete humanity of Jesus Christ, that it was very important to see him, yes, as true God, but also as true man, because Christ himself uh, would have those moments where, even responding in obedience, it was uh, maybe contrary to where he wanted to go, but he acquiesced to where he needed to go.
1: Yes, yeah. Uh, as as uh, Pope Benedict XVI wrote so wonderfully about him, he said that he gave great prominence to Christ's full humanity to redeem man in the totality of his body, soul, and spirit. Christ assumed all the elements of human nature, but then he adds, otherwise man would not have been saved. And then he he adds... Benedict, that having become a man, Christ gave us the possibility of becoming in turn like him. He adds that, that Nazianzus exhorted people, let us seek to be like Christ because Christ also became like us, to become gods through him, since he himself through us became a man who took the worst upon himself to make us a gift of the best. So we see this other teaching of theosis. Uh, divinization that of course becomes this wonderful recurring theme uh, in in the church fathers we see that for example in augustine and then we can also focus on mary who gave christ as as pope benedict writes his human nature the true mother of god uh, who was purified in advance as as gregory teaches and describes her as mary Proposed to Christians, especially to versions as a model, and their help to call upon in times of need. Another aspect of of Gregory's teachings. And then he talks about the solidarity that all of this creates, uh, that we are, as Gregory writes, all one in the Lord, rich and poor, slaves and free, healthy and sick alike, and one is the head from which all derive, Jesus Christ. And as with members of one body, each is concerned with the other, and all with all.
0: Mm. So much more that we can learn from Gregory of Nazianzus and that's a, a great beauty of that current work that it can be found not only in the teachings that Pope Benedict the 16th has written about him but also in his actual writings.
1: Yes, and and we're blessed because we not only have Pope Benedict's meditations on him But we can read his orations, and and you can readily find them online. So I would encourage uh, all of our listeners to find the orations of Gregory of Nazianzus.
0: Any final thoughts, Matthew?
1: We once again are looking at a a doctor of the church who, in his era, was grappling with the great crises of his age. And this is something that we're going to continue to talk about with the, the doctors coming up. And one of the great roles of the doctors of the church is to give us prescriptions, uh, so to speak, to dealing with heresy. And we find heresies popping up again and again, but it always seems to be just a new version. And it's an old heresy with a new face or a new wardrobe. And the doctors of the church, like Gregory and, and others that we've been discussing, help us to really find the antidotes to the poisonous teachings of a bygone era that we're dealing with today. There is that sort of perpetual value to the doctors. And the more we study them, the more armed we will be, and the clearer we can be in our understanding of the faith.
0: Dr. Matthew Bunsen, thank you so much.
1: It's great to be with you, Chris.
0: You've been listening to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or you can find it in the free Discerning Hearts app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this program has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen.